Want to go ahead and read the thing? Oh, yeah. So, here's a question for you. Mm-hmm. When did women in the United States get the right to vote? Some would say June 4th, 1919, the day that the 19th Amendment was passed by Congress. Some would say it was August 18th, 1920, the day that the amendment was ratified and made law. As we all know, however, the real test of a law is whether or not it can survive a challenge before the United States Supreme Court. So February 27th, 1922 would be more properly viewed as the date when women's suffrage in the United States truly became law. However, as with many, many things about history, the truth is messier and more interesting than a simple soundbite can make it. We are creatures of nuance and shades of gray, not cut and dry, black and white, right and wrong. The history of the United States, and of humanity in general, is filled with heroes who did villainous things, criminals who behaved righteously, and legal cases that seem obvious from the outside and are anything but simple when examined closely. What seems like an ordinary legal challenge, the law had been changed to allow women the right to vote so women have the right to vote, instead became a question about federal law, women's basic human rights, and the very concept of what it means to be a voter in the United States, the echoes of which are still felt today. On this episode of Relative Disasters, the case of Lesser v. Garnett. Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my sister and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events, their context, implications, and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. I'm Greg, currently clerking for the Law Offices of Relative, Relative, and Disasters. And I'm his sister, Ella, paralegal research assistant for Relative, Relative, and Disasters. A fine firm. Big law. It is a fine firm. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so voting rights in the U.S. Wait, before you get going, what's the disaster here? The disaster is the case itself. Okay. Yeah. We're going to get into why the case was such a disaster. Okay, so you're okay with women voting. Oh, no. (laughs) No, we can't have that, can we? (laughs) All right. That'll lead to all sorts of things, like them having ideas. Proceed with caution. (laughs) Okay. All right, so voting rights in the U.S. are supposed to be simple. According to the Constitution, everyone of legal voting age has the right to vote. Mm. It's important to note that the 19th Amendment, like the 15th Amendment before it, did not actually grant anyone the right to vote. It made it a federal law that states could not pass a law prohibiting someone to vote. Okay. When I first started researching this a few months back, I was really brought up short by that. So basically, women always had the right to vote. But states had taken it away from them. All states. All states. New Jersey was the one holdout, but even even New Jersey took it away in 1807. See, it's so, such a disappointment to me. It's so weird, right? We have the right law, but nobody wants to follow it. Okay. <laughs> so just as the 15th Amendment had removed the right to disenfranchise people based on, quote, race, color, or previous condition of servitude, end quote, which oh, is boy. probably the nicest way to put that. A lot to unpack there. Yep, and we're just going to roll right past it because the 15th would be its own frickin' season. Uh, The 19th Amendment reads as follows, quote, 
The rights of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. <laughs> Congress shall have the power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. End quote. That seems pretty straightforward, right? Yeah. There's not a lot of wiggle room there. Uh, not that I can see, but I no. am, I've only been a paralegal research assistant for a few <laughs> months, so maybe I'm missing some nuance here. You've been a woman for a lot longer, though, so there is Well, that. I mean... Um, well, so just as the 15th Amendment was attacked in courts and served as an excuse for racially motivated murders, and then when that didn't work, uh, it just got undermined by poll taxes and Jim Crow laws, and, and the true birthday of equal voting rights is widely viewed as the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, right. uh, the effort to enfranchise women with the 19th Amendment was not an easy process. And just like civil rights for people of color are still undermined today, a new wave of American politicians attempting to repeal a woman's right to vote is gaining momentum. So what better time to talk about history so we don't repeat these sort of mistakes? Uh, our sources today come from the Constitution of the United States, which is a fascinating read for folks who want to find out what is and isn't in that document. It's very short. It really is a quick it, read. It, it's, it's a very quick read. A, a little afternoon light reading. You can get them in large um, print, too. You can. Yeah, and they're real nice. You can get some leather-bound copies if you want. It's very small, but... Uh, let's see. The transcript of the Lesser v. Garnett Supreme Court case, which is available widely and freely and awesome. Mm-hmm. And a plethora of books on the various voting rights movements of the United States. Um, I'm not going to list them all, but I will uh, cite several of those sources in the uh, show notes. So let's begin with some history. While we're going to be focusing on the 19th Amendment and its securing of women's right to have a vote, Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to be focusing on the events that directly tie into the Lesser v. Garnett court case. So by necessity, we're going to be leaving out a lot in very broad strokes. Before the United States was the United States, they were a collection of 13 colonies made up of mostly British colonists. Those colonies operated under British law, but voted to elect colonial officials, and women voted as well as men. After the Revolution, the law of the land was basically if you owned property, you could vote. Right. And so women did own property so they could vote. However, after 1776, most of the newly formed states restricted suffrage to land-owning men. The last holdout was actually New Jersey, which didn't revoke their women's suffrage rights until 1807. So, good job, sure. I guess? Points for trying, maybe? <laughs> so, the Seneca Falls Convention of 1848 passed a, res- a resolution in favor of women's suffrage. And in the 1860s and 70s, women such as Susan B. Anthony, Sojourner Truth, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, Emma Smith DeVoe, and Lucy Stone would all be at the forefront of the movement, with Susan B. Anthony even being arrested and found guilty of voting in the 1872 election. I'm sorry. Arrested and found guilty? And found guilty. Because she did. Okay. Yep. Because she voted, man, and she's not allowed. Uh, States out west were the first to restore women's right to vote, Mm -hmm. with Wyoming in 1869, Utah in 1870, although a few years after that, Utah revoked it again. Uh, But then Colorado, Idaho, Washington, California, Oregon, Arizona, North Dakota, New York, Rhode Island, Louisiana, Oklahoma, and Michigan had all followed suit by 1918. Okay. Uh, On the forefront of people advocating against women were... 
religious groups that believed that the husband and father of the family should be the one deciding their position on public affairs. Oh, boy. Okay. The American Brewing and Distilling Companies, which saw the link between women's suffrage and the temperance movement. Ah. Fearing, yep. Worried mm-hmm. about the bottom line. They were going to mess with their money because <laughs> they knew that if they were, they were afraid that if uh, women were allowed to vote, prohibition would go into effect. And they weren't wrong. Um <laughs> And as also, you know, good old fashioned racism, because in the beginning of the women's suffrage movement, this was a movement to get all people the right to vote. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of ugly history there that, uh, again, we don't have time to go into on this, but it's it's a gross time for everybody. There are no good guys. There are simply less bad guys. Um, Tactics included intimidation fiery political sermons, and attempts to subvert the referendums uh, themselves through voting fraud, which was great. These are the ladies doing this. These No, these are the people arguing against the women. Okay. They would show, show up to, like, polling places and threaten to beat wives and all sorts of stuff. Whoa! Uh, okay, that's there's a great cool. There's a great sign that says, if you won't beat your wife, I'll be man enough to do it. Oh, my God. Right? <laughs> I mean, wow. Humankind, okay. we really need to get better. Oh, yeah. Uh, In the American South, cotton mills opposed women's suffrage because they had just lost their workforce of enslaved people. Mm -hmm. And they were concerned that voting women would take away their workforce that now consisted of child labor. Won't somebody think of the child labor? Won't somebody think of the child labor exploiters? Uh, The political machines of the day, including the powerful Tammany Hall in New York, Mm -hmm. were generally opposed as well because it would dilute the voting pools that they'd worked so hard to control. In 1912, the New York Times published a dire editorial called The Uprising of the Women. Oh, God. It's so good, my dude. It it's so like good. It's like a B-movie from the 50s. It's great. Not the uh, it warned It warned that allowing women to vote would result in such horrifying demands as, quote, serving as soldiers and sailors, police patrolmen or firemen, and would serve on juries and elect themselves to executive offices and judgeships. Okay. It 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 blamed uh women it blamed men for not being masculine enough to fight back and warned that women would get the vote if quote the men are not firm and wise enough and it may be it may as well be said masculine enough to prevent them. End quote. What going on there, huh? I just honey somebody woke up on the wrong side of the bed somebody woke up on the wrong side of the issue man like i i I do like that quote that a person of quality is not threatened by equality sure and wow anyway so the national association opposed to women's suffrage was formed in 1911 made up of mostly middle and upper class women who declared that women's suffrage would quote reduce the special protections and roots of influence available to women destroy the family and increase the number of socialist voters end quote did they uh specify what roots yes uh, they didn't specify. They they did not say the quiet part out loud. Mm-hmm. But basically, this was a thing of like high society women who had access either as wives, daughters or friends and social acquaintances to the politicians of the day. Mm-hmm. And giving women without that access a right to vote would mean no longer having that advantage. Right. Like if you're, you know, Senator What's-His-Face's mistress on the side you can prod him to do certain things, but, you know, Jane on the street shouldn't have to 
get a say in these things. It was it was pretty ugly. Uh, the New York State Association opposed to women's suffrage was led by one Josephine Jewell Dodge, and uh, their their creed was stated as the following, quote, We believe in every possible advancement to women. We believe that this advancement should be along those legitimate lines of work and endeavor for which she is best fitted and for which she now has unlimited opportunities. We believe this advancement will be better achieved through strictly nonpartisan effort and without the limitations of the ballot. We believe in progress, not in politics for women. End quote. Somebody who did say the quiet part out loud, because you can always count on them, mm-hmm. uh, was the president of the Georgia United Daughters of the Confederacy, a woman named Mildred Rutherford who spoke before the Georgia State Legislature in 1914 and said the following, quote, The women who are working for this measure are striking at the principle for which their fathers fought during the Civil War. Women's suffrage comes from the North and the West, and from women who do not believe in states' rights and wish to see Negro women using the ballot. I do not believe the state of Georgia has sunk so low that her good men cannot legislate for women. End quote. Okay. Yeah. That's yeah. horrible. There's a lot of really, really problematic stuff, okay? And and there's a, a really good book called Southern Strategies, Southern Women and the Women's Suffrage Question, written by a, a writer named Elna C. Green. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to pull one quote from that, uh, where she states that, quote, suffrage rhetoric claimed that enfranchised women would outlaw child labor, pass minimum wage and maximum hour laws for workers, and establish health and safety standards for factory workers, end quote. What? what? I want to say those are Wait. all bad things, right? <laughs> we, want we can't those have things. this. <laughs> no, we don't want those things. That will, won't someone please think of the economy? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I, just, I can't. Right? Like, those are all really good things. I would and, so much rather talk about an earthquake or right? a volcano. Because <laughs> earthquakes and volcanoes don't have to be mean about this it. This is so depressing. Okay. It's so bad. Okay. And the real problem was that this united the industries, a, a lot of different industries. So planters, railways, the liquor industry, textile mills, and political machine bosses basically all had a common enemy, the suffragists. Mm -hmm. And so they funded the anti-suffrage efforts really well. Mm -hmm. So this set the backdrop of a very tough moment in American history. While not as outwardly violent as the lead up to the 15th Amendment, it was still pretty bad. Uh, Women who marched in protest were beaten by police. Men whose wives took part in the movement were fired or shunned. Uh, suffragists were portrayed as humorless, pinch-faced, shrieking hags, and if the suffragists tried to advocate for themselves, it simply played into the hands of those vilifying them. Basically, their options were to be beaten into silence or viewed as a societal annoyance. Those are uh, both gosh, bad. It's, it's reminding me of something today, but I can't really put my finger on it, but it's probably fine. Uh, and still, they persisted. Suffragists took part in the First World War as nurses, ambulance drivers, relief workers, and factory workers, 
and pointed out the hypocrisy of Americans fighting to preserve democracy abroad while still restricting their own citizens from voting at home. Yeah, that is a bad look, I have to say. It's a real bad look, and they played it really well. In 1918, there was a very difficult midterm election, Mm -hmm. and President Woodrow Wilson saw the writing on the wall. With 15 states already returning women their right to vote and ever the politician, he threw his support behind the so-called Anthony Amendment, named after Susan B. Anthony, In May of 1919, the 19th Amendment passed the House of Representatives, and the Senate followed on June 4th. Okay. So once an amendment to the Constitution is is proposed and passed by the House and Senate, it needs to be ratified by 36 states to become federal law. By the end of 1919, 22 states had ratified it. That's actually fairly quick for a ratification measure. Sure. Uh, But the big toss-up was going to be whether any of the 11 so-called Deep South states would break ranks and ratify, as well as some of the more conservative at the time states, such as Maryland and Delaware. Mm -hmm. The tipping point would come when Tennessee narrowly ratified the amendment to become the 36th state. The certificate was sent by registered mail to United States Secretary of State Bainbridge Colby, who certified it, and the 19th Amendment to the Constitution became federal law. Yay! Now, I want to take a small sidebar into the Tennessee ratification because it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Tennessee, there were so many of the uh, there were so many anti-suffragist senators that knew they didn't have the votes to actually defeat the measure, um, and they also didn't have enough people to. Um, successfully filibuster Mm -hmm. so what they did was a whole bunch of them jumped on a train to alabama to try to prevent the uh the state legislative body from having a quorum what a fun field trip (laughs) right (laughs) they literally ran away from a vote they were going to lose it's pretty great it passed with 50 of the 99 uh state legislators voting for it So it squeaked through, but it squeaked through. All right. So the 19th Amendment is now federal law. Almost immediately, the legal challenges began. In the state of New York, a state that had allowed suffrage in 1917 and had ratified the amendment in 1919, lived a man named Charles S. Fairchild, a former United States Secretary of the Treasury and Attorney General of New York. Fairchild didn't like this new law, and he challenged not its constitutionality, but whether the ratification process had been followed correctly. Losing his case in all of the lower courts, his appeal finally went to the Supreme Court in November of 1922, and the court's decision was that he did not have standing to challenge the law. Basically, you're a citizen of a state that already ratified the amendment. Deal with yourself. Did they say anything about whether or not the case was... They did not comment on the merit. They, okay. they did not comment on the merit of the case. All they did was basically declare that he didn't have standing. The more serious challenge came in the form of today's subject, Lesser v. Garnett, who, which was brought by a lawyer, later a judge, named Oscar Lesser of Maryland. On October 19, 1920, two women, Cecilia Waters and Mary Randolph, registered to vote in Baltimore, Maryland. 
Lesser brought suit to have their names struck from the voting rolls on the grounds that Maryland's state constitution limits suffrage to men, despite the 19th Amendment being law for two months at this point. And since the sorry, why these two women? Were they the only two women who were trying to They were to the register? first. Oh, they okay. were the first women to register. Gotcha. Exactly. So he was waiting for the first two women to try to get on the voting rolls so he could do this. Um, so despite the 19th Amendment being law for two months at this point, mm-hmm. his argument was that since the legislature of Maryland had refused to ratify it and their constitution doesn't allow women, their state constitution doesn't allow women, he had a classic case of I didn't vote for it, so it doesn't apply to me. Hmm. Um, the Maryland trial court overruled and dismissed his case. He appealed to the state Supreme Court, where it was dismissed again, so he put forth a writ of certiorari to the Supreme Court, arguing that the 19th Amendment has not or should not have become part of the Constitution. Because he didn't vote for it. Right, exactly. He didn't like it. (laughs) He didn't like it. It's not fair, you guys. I didn't want this. Okay. Um, Well, I mean... I hear that argument a lot as, I, as a I hear parent. that argument a lot with kindergartners. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yep. Mm-hmm. I didn't know you could actually argue a legal case on that basis, but. Well, the nice thing is you really can't. Live and learn. But, but he tried. <laughs> okay. Uh, so Lesser's argument rested on three claims. Mm-hmm. Claim number one. This amendment will destroy a state's autonomy as a political body by increasing its electorate without the state's consent. See, and, law- and lawmakers do not have the right to amend the Constitution in this way. It's almost like they want women to be around, but they want like an, an invisibility factor in there. Yeah, it's weird, right? Like they don't mind like, ladies in principle. They just right, they right, just don't want right. them doing anything yeah. important. No, I think that's accurate. Okay. I think that's accurate. And and obviously understandable. I mean, women simply wanting to vote though. I mean, that's that's beyond the pale, obviously. Because, because it's they that, have, you know. It's just not done. It's not the way our forefathers did it anyway. Actually, technically speaking, it was the way their forefathers did it. I was it, just going to say, but they had this whole system. I know, right? Sad. Anyway, uh, claim number two. Okay. State constitutions that don't enfranchise women, such as Maryland, couldn't vote to ratify a contradictory federal amendment. So basically, he was his argument on point number two is that if you're a state that hadn't already given women the right to vote, how could you possibly vote for the 19th Amendment um, to give every woman the right to vote? It's a little brain teaser, isn't it? Right? He would have it's gotten sort of along like... great with the lady from Georgia. <laughs> it's like the it's like the could God make an object so heavy he couldn't lift it <laughs> argument, you know? Uh, and finally, <laughs> uh, his third claim was that the Tennessee and the West Virginia ratifications were invalid due to how the votes were conducted. Uh, How were the votes conducted? His argument was that because the votes were conducted by state legislature uh, procedure, not by federal states meeting in the purpose of federal legislature procedure, they they weren't valid. Basically, he's saying, yeah, you might have hit the ball out of the ballpark, but I don't think your foot touched second base, so that's not a home run. And honestly... um, This is actually the claim that he actually came closest to. Now, this entire suit Mm -hmm. is a disaster because 
for one thing, he's arguing, he's making an argument, he's making a series of bad faith arguments, mm-hmm. um, which contradict each other, by the way. He's saying in his second claim that, well, he's saying in his first claim that a federal law shouldn't override a state law. Mm-hmm. He's saying in his, stec- his second claim that a state with a state law that would contradict a federal law shouldn't be able to vote for that federal law. And he's saying with his third claim that... Um, because they didn't properly follow federal procedure, the state laws, uh, the state legislatures couldn't have confirmed a federal law. I mean, this is so, a cranky child throwing a temper tantrum, <laughs> saying whatever crosses their little mind. It's true. It's really that is That's an excellent. All it sounds like to me. It, it's fairly close. Also, he's he's not only making bad faith arguments; he's also coming at it from a place of bad faith. Sure. Um, some of his people who are arguing on his behalf mm-hmm. were also very uh, instrumental in arguing against the previous 15th Amendment, which, you know, said that people had the right to vote no matter what their race, creed, or color was. So he's just got a thing against voting. It's his He's it's his got hobby. a thing against anybody but him voting, he wants I think to is vote. what it is. Nobody else yes. should be voting. Okay, right. I right. Gotcha. Well, and, I gotcha. and you can see his point. I mean, it, when he... When he was voting, everything was fine. But mm. now you're going to have all these other people come in and voting and they're stuff, simply yeah. not going to vote the right way. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So we got to talk about the Supreme Court of the time. Sure. Uh, it was interesting as Supreme Courts go. The chief justice was former President Howard Taft. So this is the this is the classic. Uh, I did Taft not know that. <laughs> Yeah, this is the only this is the only time that we have had a former president be the chief justice of a Supreme Court. And it was Howard Taft. Now, his Supreme Court, the Taft Court, had a distinctive conservative view of the law with regards to commerce jurisprudence, which led them to strike down a lot of attempts to regulate businesses, including striking down or crippling measures that would have um, had an impact on, for example, child labor. And they were, while he was fairly open to the powers of government, Mm -hmm. he tended to have a lot of rulings of the preservation of individual rights over civil rights, including a really nasty case where they ruled unanimously that segregation on regards to race did not violate the Constitution. It didn't violate the 14th Amendment. And and that wasn't that was segregation in terms of a person of Chinese descent. Mm -hmm. Um, so what that did was it allowed segregationists to point out that, look, we're not being racist against black people. We're being racist against everybody. It's just so embarrassing that this was only a hundred years ago. (laughs) It's so embarrassing that this is still happening. Anyway, uh, this court also had some pretty neat people on it. It had, uh, judges Oliver Wendell Holmes and, and Louis Brandeis, um, both of them. Uh, usually dissented from the majority opinions. They were considered to be the sort of liberal wing of the Taft Court. Oh, yeah. Flaming um, liberal. Oliver Holmes. Yep. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oliver, Oliver Wendell Holmes was definitely the, the flaming liberal oh, God, of the day. Yeah. so weird. But it's kind of fun. It's kind of a fun fact that Louis Brandeis delivered the case opinions in both Fairchild v. Hughes and Lesser v. Garnett. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mr. Justice Brandeis delivered the opinion of the court 
where basically he he restated uh, in the decision on February 27th, 1922. So he restated the claims, even though they did not actually need to do this. This is this is an important an important note in Lesser v. Garnett. When mm-hmm. Lesser v. Garnett reached the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court could have just dismissed it out of hand by basically saying, "Look, it's in the Constitution. Deal with your nonsense." But I mean, they didn't, and they unanimously came together to say, "Look." It's in the Constitution. Here's why. Okay. And so Louis Brandeis issuing the opinion of the court was just chef's kiss amazing. So claim number one, uh, uh, you can't involuntarily increase the electorate without the state's consent. Right. The amendment is copy and pasted from the 15th Amendment. And... One can't be valid and the other one not valid. And even though Maryland still had rejected the 15th Amendment, uh, it's been recognized by the rest of the United States and acted on for half a century. Yeah. So if you want to cite precedent, I'll cite a 50-year precedent and no. So that one gets knocked down. Great. His second point, that state constitutions uh, couldn't vote to ratify a federal amendment that would contradict their, if you don't, if your state doesn't allow women to vote, you can't vote for the 19th Amendment. Mm -hmm. So he says, well, so the Secretary of State, basically part of their job is to send these notices of ratification out to the states. The function of the state legislature in ratifying the amendment to the federal constitution is a federal function, and that transcends any limitations imposed by the state itself. Okay. When you're voting on this, even if your own state doesn't allow women's suffrage, when you vote to ratify a federal amendment to the federal constitution, you are acting as the voice of your state in a federal matter. So you, your state's own, you know, little quirks and foibles don't matter. All right. I mean, is right. That's you're choosing to be part of the United States. Therefore, either be part of it. Of the country is the United States. United States. Exactly. We had a whole civil war over this. We did. We we fought (laughs) over this thing, people. Just what was not clear there. Okay, go ahead. A lot of things. A lot of things, apparently. So his final his final argument was that the West Virginia and Tennessee ratifications were invalid due to how the votes were conducted. Mm -hmm. Okay. And Brandeis is great on this because, you know, it's the Supreme Court in 1922. They're not going to throw Twitter shade, but he comes the closest he could have uh, by saying that um, uh, the question raised has been rendered immaterial by the fact that since the proclamation, uh, the legislatures of two other states, Connecticut and Vermont, have adopted the resolutions of ratification. So even if Tennessee and West Virginia were not... Uh, did not properly ratify it. Connecticut and Vermont did, which puts us over the 36, which means it's law anyway. But I'm still going to answer your question. <laughs> okay. The proclamation, but the proclamation by the secretary certified that from official documents on file in the Department of State, it appeared that the proposed amendment was ratified by the legislatures of all 36 states, valid to all intents and purposes. 
as the legislatures of Tennessee and West Virginia had power to adopt the resolutions of ratification and uh, served official notice to the secretary, which was duly authenticated, that is conclusive and it is the law. So basically, you can't just because you don't like how they conducted the vote. It doesn't mean that you can say they didn't conduct it properly. Right. And uh, and so all three of those little pillars get struck down and, uh, you know, Lester gets pretty much publicly humiliated, Uh except except he doesn't, you see, because. This just makes him more of a political figure. And as I said, he goes on to become a judge. Huh. Fortunately, Oscar Lesser uh, lives out the rest of his life as a judge on the Supreme Bench of Baltimore City. Okay. That seems like a fairly safe place. Sure. Yeah. However, uh, he resigned in 1939 to run for the U.S. Senate and was defeated by a man named Millard Tidings. Know why he was so, defeated? Because No women he, would vote for him. N- n- it, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> My guess is if we look into that, yeah. You can't be mean to big groups of people, Oscar. This is how it works. <sighs> Eliminating half of the population from your worldview does not serve you well. Not very savvy. Okay. This is settled law. This is a, an amendment to the Constitution. This is not something that's up for debate. Women have been returned their right to vote. Not women have been allowed to vote. Women always have been allowed to vote. States just took it away for a while. That's so, so we're ridiculous. Just gonna, okay. It's, it's, it's absurdity incarnate, but we're just moving past that absurdism to the point where people in modern politics are looking to repeal the 19th Amendment. Why? They are few. Why? What is the argument? Between. What is the argument here? The argument is a return to traditional values. But women used to have the right to vote. I know. A long time ago, back when America these, was truly traditional, back before these independence. These arguments fall apart under any scrutiny, but they're still being made. I, and there are mayoral, mm-hmm. senatorial, and governor candidates on the ballot this year that have gone on record stating that they would like to have the 19th Amendment repealed. Just how is that even a a talking point? How would you go about doing that? Why would you go about doing that? Well, you seem you you need to be appealing to a certain demographic of voters. Is it women? And you need to be hoping. Well, unfortunately, there are, you know, there are people in many different demographics who do align their views here and and you've got to hope that there's enough of them that will vote for you and that your statements won't galvanize enough people to vote against you um so even though this is a settled matter and this is something that like we should have really super moved beyond at this point uh just a heads up it's still happening it's a nice reminder that in the United States, the only rights that we truly have are the ones that we continue to acknowledge, use, and refuse to give up on. And anyone who sits out an election feeling like, what does it matter, uh, should really study the last 20, 30 years of how much it really does matter. So that's it. 
that's the story of Lesser v. Garnett, the story of one very unhappy lawyer who had to make several bad faith arguments in front of the Supreme Court. So and the embarrassing. Supreme Court, I mean, it, it, and it should be embarrassing. But, uh, you know, he, he continued to fail upward and still be wealthy and be a judge. So good for him. Any questions? Uh, <laughs> just um, I learned a lot of new things and I'm not comfortable with all the and things I'm not I happy learned. with any of them. Um, no. <laughs> so I'll get back to you on that. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. Although we gave you a slightly exaggerated credential at the top of the show, we do fact check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read more about our sources, a complete bibliography is available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let us know. You can do that by emailing us at relative.disasters at gmail.com, or if you'd like to shame us publicly. And you know you do. Why not use our Instagram, at relative.disasters. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Relative Disasters. We hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion, and please join us next time for another strange, dangerous, and interesting event from history. My sister has selected our next disaster. What's it going to be, Ella? Well, Greg, continuing our theme of women who get things done, uh, right. <laughs> we're going to talk about a train disaster next week. Oh, another one? Yeah. Okay. We're going to talk okay. about the 1881. You know what? I'm not sure what to call this. It's not an event. It's not an incident. Okay. It's okay. definitely a disaster, um, but it's much <laughs> better than it could have been. We're going to talk about okay. Kate Shelley and the night of July 6th, oh. 1881. Okay. Uh, this is a this is a long time listener request. We're we're coming up to the end of our second season. This is our penultimate episode. Mm -hmm. We're closing them out with two listener requests. So uh, I will say this one, this one uh, is one that we have been receiving since we first floated the idea of doing a podcast yes. back in yep. uh, 2019. Yep. You should do an episode yep. on the Kate Shelley Bridge. Why don't you do and, an episode and, on the Kate Shelley and now Bridge? We're going to. Yep. Have you done an episode on the Kate Shelley Bridge? I wonder if you've started researching that episode on the Kate Shelley Bridge. All of that comes from our father. Uh, yeah, it all fan, comes from our dad. A big fan yep. of Kate Shelley. Big fan of Kate Shelley and this podcast and trains, of course. And trains. So, I think he only listens to our train episodes. I, you know what? I, if I would. Well, uh, that sounds like an amazing disaster, and I can't wait to talk about it with you.